Welcome to What Were You Thinking, brought to you with Vestiaire Collective and hosted by me, Henry Holland, the high-haired fashion-obsessed northerner. Before we get started, I just want you to know that this podcast is not about my guests' fashion fails. It's all about the fashion moments that shaped their lives personally and professionally. Make sure you follow along to see all the outfits discussed on today's episode by following us on Instagram at What Were You Thinking Podcast. Shatter the myth, Paul Smith. Paul Smith has always been the man I aspire to be when I grow up. Mostly because I never really want to grow up. I had the pleasure of interviewing him a few years ago and I've quoted things I learned from him that day for the last 10 years. And I've often tried to channel his humble gratitude and overwhelming optimism during my 15 years of running my own label. Paul the man, just like his collections, can be wildly eccentric, is always interested and engaging all at the same time, and inspiring to everyone he meets. I have no doubt that his evergreen success in such a fickle industry is really down to his overwhelming sense of self. A unique point of view coupled with a radiating warmth that he's able to infuse into every inch of his business. There are hundreds of topics you could chat to Paul about, but today I want to chat to him about clothes. The clothes he's designed and the clothes he's worn. What importance they've played in his life and the impact they've had. What was the first piece of clothing he ever made? What's his most treasured piece of clothing from his own wardrobe? An avid collector and curator, does he archive and collect his own clothes from over the years that hold special memories? Does he have any bad memories associated to certain items or collections from his career now spanning 50 years? Let's find out. Thank you so much for coming on as a guest on the podcast. Um, it's really great to speak to you again. I remember when I came to your office about 10 years ago and interviewed you for a piece for Vogue. And it, I just found it the most fascinating chat ever. I've still been quoting the things you told me 10 years later. So ah, that's nice. Well, I mean, that mad office that you came into. So as you know, it's uh, full of... Full I'm of sure stuff. It's collected even more stuff. <laughs> Don't ever stop collecting. Just get a bigger office. I used to be able to cycle around my desk, but now uh, it's a bit more dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> it's not safe anymore. I want to talk to you really today about your personal relationship with clothes and fashion. Obviously, you've got quite a unique standpoint in that, you know, you make clothes as well as wearing them every day. And so, you know, the choices that you make to put on your own back versus the choices that you make when designing clothes is kind of a unique relationship. But when do you first remember kind of being interested and excited by clothes? The starting off point, which might bore some of your listeners because they've heard it before, but, you know, from sort of 12 until 18, I wanted to be a professional racing cyclist. So I was into the sport and obviously I was conscious about how I looked and how the bike looked and all that, but was not really into fashion as such. And then as again, as your, a lot of your listeners and you might know is I had a bad crash and then ended up in hospital for ages. And then when I came out, and this is where the sort of story to do with fashion started, really was completely by chance, a couple of the lads that were also in hospital, motorbike accident and a car accident, we all got let out <laughs> at the same time. And uh, we we met in a pub in my hometown of Nottingham and completely by chance and luckily for me it was the 
it was the pub where all the art students went and uh, there was fashion students, there was graphic design, photography, architecture. So this world of sort of creativity suddenly burst into my life and uh, amazing is that where you met your wife pauline yeah that's uh yeah she was she was teaching a couple of days a week at the art school and that was about two years later when i met her when i was well actually uh, th- three years later when i was 21 but the thing was suddenly i thought oh i wonder if you could earn a living doing something that's to do with something called design <laughs> and it was uh and that was the turning point and so and what were some of your earliest kind of experimental outfits like well i suppose what it was it tied in exactly with the whole um hippie movement and yeah what was called i mean it sounds a bit dated now to say what i'm about to say but swinging london as it was called then you know and there was a lot of, a lot happening in, in london in the 1960s because it was the first time, really, a lot of young people could actually express themselves very openly after the horror of, believe it or not, I'm going to talk about the war, but, you know, but the, the people from the 1950s were still sort of depressed and hanging on to the memory of war. But when it came to the 60s, suddenly you got the Stones, the, the Beatles, you got mods, and then linked with San Francisco you got the whole uh, West Coast American scene with kaftans and the relationship with India and hippies and the whole thing so in a long way to answer your question I was wearing sort of floral shirts and too many scarves and and long hair and velvet trousers and uh, you know what was so lovely though Henry was self-expression through just your clothes as opposed to violence or politics it was just just trying to look a bit different really yeah and how swinging was nottingham in the late 60s <laughs> nottingham wasn't so <laughs> swinging really i mean it was you did stand out quite a lot in uh, in nottingham even just to have long hair really I remember getting stopped in the street quite, and in my opinion, quite rightly, probably from a gentleman who'd fought in the war. And he was like, you look like a girl. You get your hair cut. <laughs> and he was right, I'm sure. But, you know, <laughs> hey, you know, we were, we were just trying to look different. And I suppose the most significant thing I did, which was, I don't know where the heck it came from, also how the heck uh, I had the money, but I had probably aged 20 or something i i had a bespoke suit made by a local tailor which admittedly then was a lot less you know now they're three thousand quid or something but then it was um it was expensive but not nearly as much as as it would be now and i had it made in in a a mint green gabardine double-breasted oh wow i got married in a mint green moire double-breasted (laughs) <laughs> oh, fantastic, yeah. That's insane. And then I went on to having a pink, dusty pink, single-breasted. And these, again, were bespoke suits you were having made at the time? Or... Yeah, so that was amazing, really, in hindsight, at age 20. And so was getting bespoke pieces made like your sort of introduction into kind of into design in a way in terms of knowing what cut you wanted how you want you know like linings buttons trimmings all of those things yeah I mean I helped uh, you know age 18 I went to I helped uh, one of the girls from the art college uh, to open a little boutique her dad was setting her up in a in a shop and it and she was going to make and design the clothes women's clothes and she just said I don't know how to do it can you help me out so 
found some premises and did something called a lease <laughs> with no idea <laughs> yeah. what a lease was and, and met somebody called a solicitor. I bet you wish you never <laughs> learned what a lease was. <laughs> and then the, the the major turning point was, was age 21 meeting Pauline and Pauline had studied couture, um, pure couture at the Royal College. Didn't you used to go to the couture shows together with some of her students? Oh, well, they were amazing. Yeah, I mean, age 22, going to Patou, Bauman, Lanvin, Courage. Uh, and then eventually we went to Chanel with her sitting there, in, you know, just before she passed away. Wow. Uh, Saint Laurent, the day, the day he launched the, the smoking. Yeah. Le smoking, the trouser suit for... For girls, which was absolutely outrageous to have a, a trouser suit for a, for a, a, a woman, especially in in that evening, you know, with the satin uh, lapels. Yeah, and uh, it's a it's a very iconic one. That show we went to that was filmed, um, photographed later by um, Helmut uh, Newton, the photographer, and because uh, so many people will know these designer names now as just companies rather than people. You know, but you you were able to go to those shows when it was still those people. It's so disappointed now when you see large logos on the back of a cotton drill jacket with an iconic name on it. And you just think, oh, if only the 14-year-old that's buying that or got their grandma to buy that because they're so expensive. And to, if only they knew that, you know, this guy started the new look in 1946 or this guy was the guy who created this the, the smoking or, or or this lady was the lady who did the famous tweed jacket with the little chain around the hem of the the jacket to hold the balance there right and everything and so yeah so we were very very privileged to go to those shows and there'd be about 20 people in the audience that was it now there'd be a thousand or like 600 or something no music about about eight models you can hear the clothes as they pass yeah. i bet that's yeah. amazing 14, yeah 14 looks maybe maximum 20 just a little line sheet on your chair saying what they were made out of and then the audience was hilarious because it was um they'd be like a, a pop star as a, i literally use that name intentionally do you remember that song called Band of Gold? Oh, Gloria, what's she called? Anyway, she was there once, <laughs> front row. and um, So the celebrities on the front row has been going on for years? Well, okay, there'd be one. There'd be one. Well, just the one. Okay, yeah, great. and then there'd be <laughs> Babe Paley, who was a you know, New York socialite, and then there'd be you know, about 18 people in the audience, 20 maximum, because they used to have either one or two shows a day for two weeks. And, uh, and then, this is the beautiful thing, quite often be two nuns with six young gals. <laughs> and I say gals intentionally, they'd be 15, 16, because they were taken to the couture shows with the absolute key to it being that they would become seamstresses or wow. toilists or so like a recruitment drive from the convent <laughs> yeah yeah well to show them what an important industry it was right yeah and what your your career could be working for one of the masters you know especially people like balenciaga the, the master of cut and the and patu who did the most perfect full circle skirt you know and amazing amazing cutting and wonderful we'll be back with paul after this 
In case you've been living under a rock and you haven't noticed, this podcast is in partnership with Vestia Collective. That's au français for shared wardrobe, darling. The leading global platform for pre-loved fashion. There are currently over 1.6 million fashion items available to purchase from every brand you could ever imagine. And over 50,000 new ones are added every single week. Download the Vestiaire Collective app and use my promo code HENRY at the checkout for 20 quid off when you spend 150. Full T's and C's on vestiairecollective.com. Au revoir. And so then, so you opened your first store in 1970, right? In in Nottingham. Yeah. In the store when you first opened it, did it have any of your own pieces that you'd made and designed in there or was it just other people's designs at, the, at that point? It was, um, first of all, it was a 12-foot square windowless room called a <laughs> shop, only open Fridays and Saturdays. and With the Afghan hound shop assistant. Yeah, he was the boss. Yeah, he was the manager. Yeah. He was called Homer after the, the, the Greek god, Homer the Iliad. And um, Pauline made a lot of the clothes um, and they had a very low cost printed label called Paul Smith on them. Um, we, we eventually did one with a logo and all that, but that took a long time. So there were any, if any of those clothes were still available today, they were so special. There was like one suede coat with a fur collar and there was two silk shirts with with patchwork band around the middle that she sat in the evening doing that old traditional, you know, like quilting, like patchworking, where you, where you sew it on some paper and then you join it all up. Do you remember the first piece that you ever sold with your name on it then? It was probably a floral shirt, probably. Right. Uh, like a Liberty, we used to buy, you know, four yards or two yards of Liberty fabric because that's could we all we could afford and make one shirt and... I was the, I think, the very first stockist in all the country, even before London, of wow. Kenzo, uh, who, we, who we knew, uh, Sonia Ricciel herself, Margaret Howell, and then Margaret's sister called Georgina Howell, who did very beautiful uh, Fair Isle sweaters. And then we had 501 Levi's, which you couldn't buy in England at the time. And I, we used to get those in from New York. So did people used to come from far and wide? Like, how long did it take for you to get a reputation? Did people appreciate that these were really rare pieces that you couldn't get anywhere else? Yeah, a couple of, couple of years and slowly... Because I was travelling to London quite a lot because Pauline's a Londoner. So we had a little old, old car. It used to take, like, four hours to get to London. But we, we often go down to London, like, once a month. And so often I'd have, have some t-shirts or something in the car and see if I could sell them to mates and things like that and then slowly because it was in in Nottingham the shop so there was quite a good club scene in Sheffield pre-arctic monkeys <laughs> you know there was there was um, a good club called the Mojo in Sheffield and then in Manchester there was a club called the I think it was Manchester Twisted Wheel and they people heard about my little shop and used to drive down on Saturday just to try and find something a little bit different and then eventually opened a, a tiny proper shop with a window onto the street. That was a, probably about six years later. And uh, by that time, I was buying vintage things as well. I used to bring like old Hawaiian shirts in from America and some vintage ties and 
we used to get the lads down from the Wigan, you know, the Wigan all-nighter from the, the... Oh, yeah, from Wigan Pier. Yeah, the Northern Soul. They still happen. So the Northern Soul kids used to come down, too many of them in, a, in an old Ford Cortina car, and they'd pull up outside the shop, <laughs> and there'd be about seven of them in, in a car for four or something. <laughs> and, then and they'd all in. pile out. Yeah, and they all pile out. And there was one lovely famous story where we had two changing rooms and a mirror at the end of the changing rooms and there was two chairs and um, my friend who was a young solicitor very proper he was trying on a suit and his wife was sitting outside and he came out and his wife said that's very nice George that's very nice and at that point one of the northern soul kids came out wearing a Hawaiian shirt and did two back flips <laughs> in front of the mirror, in front of my friend's wife, the solicitor's wife, going, yeah, that's great, mate. Yeah, I can, yeah that's going to be good. I really couldn't dance in that. It's not going to rip so if they, I do a backflip. And, and it's just so joyful, you yeah. know, Henry, because the the opposites you know a gray flannel suit on a lawyer a solicitor mm. and then this kid from the northern soul uh, circuit and that to me has always summed paul smith up you know the fact that we've got this lovely mix of you know somebody like yourself or somebody who's doing a very different sort of job yeah. could both come into the shop and enjoy the shop, you know. And do you think you being on the shop floor in those early days and seeing who your customer was and what they were buying and what they wanted, that really sort of informed that whole kind of your iconic look, I suppose? The main point about that, what you just said, is that I just love it. I just love the, the idea of being in the shop and having conversation with people and... And seeing who's going to take those clothes on. Yeah, and also especially when you get that diversity of a of a young young solicitor or some kids that have come down from the Mojo in Sheffield and the whole mix. And then, of course, just observing what people like, what they don't like, what works, what doesn't work. And then having to learn about running a business, you know, age 21 when you know i'd left school at 15 had no no a levels no o levels i mean so such a big learning curve but i suppose it's training by doing it yeah i mean that's kind of my my kind of journey was similar i mean i studied journalism so nothing to do with fashion at all and it's i think there's so many things that you can't teach like there's so many things that you have to kind of do and get wrong to actually learn how to do it well i mean journalism is you know about observing and listening and seeing other people's points of view so that really opens your eyes up a lot it was also useful when all of my friends from university became magazine editors and i was like right about this would you <laughs> <laughs> yeah or, yeah or this is what you write about me <laughs> yeah. yeah but just going back to that story in the change room wasn't there a similar story when david bowie was in the store <laughs> yeah exactly it was my my friend's 18 year old son was going off to university and uh, in those days, you wanted a suit, you know, to go to university. And uh, he, he said, well, I want a Paul Smith suit, which was nice for us. So he came in and the, again, it was this it's a very similar situation where there's three changing rooms, a mirror at the end. And my friend's son came out with his suit on and I was about to pin up the trousers. And then this man came out of the other changing room at the end by the mirror and, and looked over to the boy and he went, you look great. 
and it was David Bowie. <laughs> and my friend's <laughs> son... Was he a huge star at that point? Yeah, he was, yeah. I mean, oddly enough, David used to come in the shop quite a lot and eventually he couldn't come in the shop because there was, you know, there'd be like 400 people outside. But he managed to sneak in a few times, you know, just a car drop it or a taxi drop him off and he'd come in and he'd, they'd give me a buzz upstairs and I'd just come down and take care of him like a regular customer. But uh, on this occasion, my friend's <laughs> son, he just went pure white and froze. And I think he lost his voice at that point. <laughs> <laughs> But it was a delicious story. I mean, lovely story. <laughs> and then David, I used to then come up to the the office, um, not the one you came to, but the one the one above the shop, which is where I moved out of uh, a few years ago. And uh, as you know, it was full of sort of lots of things. So Mr. Bauer used to be so curious about oh, Smithy. What's that? What's that book over there? Why have you got that book? What's that about? You know. <laughs> How did you meet him? Did you meet him from him coming to the store? Did you meet him from other? Through coming in the store, but also because there's a. Um, you know, do you know the writer Hanif Qureshi, who did my my beautiful laundrette? Yeah. Buddha of suburbia, and yeah, he was a mate of mine and a customer, and uh, Bowie and him were mates as well. So. We had a dinner one night, Pauline and I, and uh, David and Iman, and uh, Hanif and his wife. It was a restaurant upstairs somewhere. I can't quite remember where it was. And as we left the restaurant going down the stairs, David Bowie started to turn to Pauline and started singing, the party's over, and I want to call it. And Pauline was like, <laughs> I think that's David Bowie singing to me. <laughs> lost. Again, another, another person lost for words. <laughs> So when did you start to progress into like making collections and doing kind of more of the seasonal collection side of things? Well, I suppose opening the little shop in 70, but then subsidising my existence by working a few days a week in London. As you probably know, my dad was an amateur photographer, so I learned to take pictures. I did some work with Face magazine and Arena. I did um, styling for companies. So I was in and out of London for, I don't know, twice a month or something. And then in 76, Paulie and I said, why don't we just make a little collection? And it was tiny. It was like a couple of jackets, a couple of pieces of knitwear, four shirts, a couple of pairs of trousers. And then I took that little collection to a very tiny hotel in Paris. I'd been working as a freelancer for, Brown, for Browns, as a designer for Browns. And so I'd got to know like Neiman Marcus in America and Barney's and Bon Marche, you know, the big stores around the world. And so I, I got one or two contacts there. So I sent out invitations oh, yeah. to them, you know, by post, uh, not by anything called email. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just saying, I've got my little collection and I'm showing in this hotel in Paris. Nobody came. <laughs> Did they I not? sat there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, <laughs> Nobody, just there, me and this little... All my clothes and personal <laughs> things were in the bathroom and the, the clothes were just laid out on the bed. I did the exact same thing. I was hanging T-shirts from the hotel shutters because it was so hot, I had to have the windows open. Yeah, I mean, that was it. I mean, I opened the wardrobe and there was a couple of jackets hanging. I put a bit of black felt over the bed and laid out the things. On the Thursday, I was going home on the Friday, on the Thursday about four o'clock in the afternoon. Of course, no, bar, no, no bar, mobile phones or anything, so I couldn't, couldn't ring Pauline. 
uh, and I couldn't chase anybody. I couldn't ring Paulie. I was just there on my own, and I couldn't leave the room because it was typical that somebody would turn up when you you know gone for a sandwich or something. So um, and then at, just in the afternoon of the Thursday, luckily a French guy who I knew had got a little shop. He came in and made an order, and then uh, an American company came in and made it, made an order. So. That was me often, often running. Uh, not very big orders, but at least it was. Yeah, every little help. And then, and then the following year, then I did a, a little fashion show in my mate's apartment in, in Paris, and we got about thirty people in the audience, and it was all friends doing the modelling. And I think it was the only fashion show ever where you had to ring a doorbell to get <laughs> to get into the show. Do you have any collections that really stand out as being a favourite or like your proudest today? Is it those earlier ones? Oh, I bet you do, don't you? I have ones that I really like and then I also, I also have ones that I can't look at anymore because... <laughs> well, I remember some of yours as well have been very distinctive and uh, I think sometimes you just come up with them that are a bit, you know, either more colourful or more unusual shape. I mean, we did one called... Dandy Meets Rock and Roll. And it was sort of my era. It was from the late 60s, but it was in the, I don't know when, when the collection was, it was probably in the 90s or something. And it was very, you know, embroidery and uh, velvet and things like that. And, you know, when I was 18, I made some trousers for Jimmy Page at Led Zeppelin, you know. He was 24-inch waist. Oh, my <laughs> word. And the bottom of the trousers were 28-inch waist. <laughs> 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 on each leg <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so you know it was real be- proper bell amazing no, flares or bell bottoms or no, flares really yeah um, and do you have any collections that you that you don't have fond memories of just because there was you know bad things happen yeah i mean uh, we did a show once in barcelona you know there used to be like a, a spanish fashion week or something and they invited me to do a show we did one around the, the famous olympic swimming pool there and it was just not good enough. It was too sort of basic. Sometimes you just, for whatever reason, just don't get it together. But, you know, I've done, I don't know, I must have done 120-odd shows. I mean, you do a lot of shows. So, I mean, what's inter- interesting about my own personal way of dressing was the early days were a lot more fashion, but now I just find wearing just simple clothes very practical because within a day you can be meeting so many different people from different walks of life and uh, it could be students or it could be you know some an architect or you'd be doing a talk at the royal academy or something like that so i just find a simple suit a chambray shirt or a pair of trainers or whatever just a bit more practical really these days do you have a favorite suit i've got about four favorite shirts and well, in fact, I've got the trousers on today and a couple of favourite uh, suits that are so worn out on the edge of the pocket. Those are the ones I love. When you just feel like, oh, so good, <laughs> you know, really worn in. Uh, yeah, it's a navy blue suit, very basic suit, but it's, uh, it's just a nice nothing suit, really, you know. I still use notebooks and pencils and Obviously, these days we've got the phone and you've got like credit cards and you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, your specs and whatever. So <laughs> I find a suit really practical, you know. And do you have certain pieces that you've worn to like key events or like key life moments that really hold special memories for for those kind of? Well, I, I've got the suit I wore once for the for the uh, when I got the night, you know, got the, my knighthood. Yes, but you know, I got married on the same morning, completely by chance. Did you? So. 
Yeah. What remarried? Or your first... No, no. I Paulie and I lived together for about hundred years right. before we got married. Oh no, I didn't realise that. You know, we met each other in '67, but we never got married. She was already married and uh, divorced. You know, at the age of 21, I got two dogs, two cats, and two kids. <laughs> and I was living at home with my mum and dad, so it was a bit of a shock. But then, uh, you know. In 2000, the year 2000, she said she'd like to get married. And I said, sure, you know, no problem. We just not got round to it, really. And then we arranged the date, or, you know, eight, like months in advance like you do. And then, uh, then, I don't know, two months later, after arranging the date, we got, I got this net letter from the Queen saying that she wanted to make me a sir, which is obviously very nice. And then one of the kids from work said, you know, we ought to check when, when it's going to be because, you know, you go to Japan in the winter and you travel a lot. And then she, she rang Buck House and then she put the phone down after a few phone calls and said, you're never going to believe it. <laughs> so I got uh, knighted at 11 in the morning and married at four in the afternoon. So Pauline became a lady. She became a lady. <laughs> That's so great. She like on the same day, a few hours earlier. Eleven in the morning was the knighthood. Then we had lunch at the Caprice. Then we got married at four in the afternoon. Amazing. And did you wear the same suit? No, I wore a monkey suit for the you know one of those tail jobs for the yeah our bespoke guys because we do bespoke you know over. At, Westbourne House, you know, our shop in Nottingham. So I wore that for the knighthood and then I wore just a plain navy suit and an open neck shirt for the for the wedding. Did you have any sort of quirky Paulisms on your on your knighthood suit and your monkey suit? I was I was really classic. I couldn't believe it myself. Even the lining, buttons, cufflinks. Uh, yeah, everything. Well yeah, it was so boring. <laughs> I mean, I should have been braver, but I don't know. I was humbled, you know, to get it. I did get the old CBE before that, a few years before. And then, uh, and did the Queen give you, award you your CBE as well? The Queen gave me the CBE and then Charles gave me the, the knighthood or the other way around, I can't remember. He, when it was him, he said, because you're not supposed to speak to them unless they speak to you. And he said, um, you know, uh, Diana and I wore your suits for our engagement photograph. Take did by Lord Snowden. I said, yes, I did, I, I did. Wow. Yeah, because so, the famous photograph by Lord Snowden of their, their engagement, they're both wearing blue men's shirts. Wow. And they were mine. They're, so he mentioned that at the... Uh, I just love those little snippets, because I met the Queen once, and she was like, oh, I believe you're a fashion designer. And I said, yes, ma'am, I am. And she said, oh, you know, I believe it's quite difficult at the moment in the world being a fashion designer. And I said, yeah, it's not great. <laughs> but I was like, a lot, a lot of us are, you know, working a lot overseas and, you know, and working a lot <laughs> over in China and expanding the business over there. And she was like, interesting. And then as she moved to walk away, she turned over her shoulder and was like, well, there are enough people there. <laughs> and then left. And I was just like... That is, that's that Prince Philip wit, isn't it? You know, that she picked up over the years. Yeah, I was completely floored. Like, I laughed about that for weeks. Oh. Oh, I know. That's so delightful. Yeah. So I can't believe you got married and knighted on the same day. That's so great. I know. Nor can, nor can we. I mean, talk about coincidence. Yeah. You know, it was just out of all the days it could have been. Yeah, because 
when uh, Colette from work rang, rang up and she said, you're never going to believe it. And then I said, well, it's obviously going to be a busy day then. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got that suit. Do you still have your, your wedding suit as well as your knighthood suit, I'm guessing? I probably have somewhere because I'm a bit of a, a little bit of a hoarder, as you probably... Just a tad. <laughs> That's a question, really. Does your hoard, hoarding or curating, collecting, does that extend to clothing? In Nottingham, we have... A, we have what I thought was an archive, but now I've got an archivist <laughs> and she's a professional right. archivist who works um, a couple of days a month or four days a month for us. And she said, Paul, this is not an archive. It's a room <laughs> full of stuff and I'm going to make it an archive. So I said, fair enough, Alice, whatever you say. We do have lots of um, old Smithy clothes up there, which actually really lovely to go and have a look at you know do you still have all the stuff in the basement so in your stores you always you've always had like an array of curiosities for sale as well as well you know from fine art to old cameras to absolutely yeah do you remember all that sotsas stuff the memphis stuff you loved didn't yes. you all that i never forget that stuff um and so do you still have like a a sort of a collection of things waiting to go out to the stores in the basement of the office yeah we do yeah we've got um the cage downstairs as we call it i remember you had a full set of spice girl dolls that's all i seem to remember <laughs> yeah yeah that's right yeah, 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 and of course we, the, you know, because I know you like the Memphis stuff, and I, I, st- I was collecting Memphis original, Memphis glass pieces. You know, there, there's reproductions of them now, but the, this was about four years ago, and we managed to get, I think it was about fourteen pieces over about a five year period, and then we had, we put them into the shop in in Al- Albemarle Street in Mayfair, and. Uh, then one lady came in and bought the lot, and I should have been really pleased, but I was yeah, really you were upset. like, I collected that over five years, and she just got it all. Yeah, I know. And then she just came and said, "Oh yes, I'll I'll have those." Oh wow, yeah. And uh, it, it, guess what? It was for um, a dinner party she was holding at Carriages where she was living, and she wanted them for the tables, and I was like. I'm not sure I really want to sell them. <laughs> I want somebody who really gets yeah, it. Yeah, really you know? appreciates it. The other thing that I absolutely loved was there's a, a a person, I can't remember if you even know who it is, who sends you random objects through the post. Does that still happen? Oh, yes, absolutely. Not as regularly. There's an unknown uh, fan that has been sending things for at least 40 years, probably 42 years now without any message or note or name of who it is, or no idea who it is. If they come from America, it's always the same person because the handwriting is the same. So over the years, I've had a piece of wood, yeah. a chair, a ladder, a fishing rod, um, a, a, a fluffy <laughs> chicken, uh, a bucket. Uh, and, and they the just write thing your address is, on the object, don't they? Yeah, and the key thing is they're not yeah. in a box. They just arrive. I've got in front of me a large red dog <laughs> made out of plastic with big doleful eyes with about 50 stamps on his body and the address, Paul Smith, and the address written on his body. And, they, and the postman arrives holding these things and it's become almost yeah. like performance art now. Yeah, so the, the girl on reception at work knows I get these things. The postman knows I get these things. So 
he arrived with a female bright pink plastic torso <laughs> <laughs> recently not quite knowing where to put his hands incidentally <laughs> <laughs> the poor postman yeah uh with paul smith and all the stamps that's amazing because you said you were thinking that maybe one day you'll do an exhibition of all like showcasing it all would you still think about doing that yeah we 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 had a little exhibition in hong kong about two years ago and then, and then the design museum. Um, I've had this Paul Smith exhibition that's been travelling around. It's not anywhere at the moment, but it's been in Japan and Taiwan, etc. And we did a little area there. We called it Stamped Objects. But we people are fascinated because it's still a complete unknown. And have you ever tried to find them? Well, intentionally not. No, because I sort of don't want to know. Yeah, it might ruin it. Yeah, and also because I think it's quite humbling and quite interesting that in a world where everything's to do with what am I going to get out of it sort of thing. Yeah. It's so nice that somebody does something where it doesn't appear to have any other thing attached to it than just friendship or art or I don't know. Delight and surprise, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just... Just nice, you know, it's just great. But the the whole business for me, the whole Paul Smith empire is very much so much rooted in you as a person and who you are and your loves and passions and interests, as well as your personal style, I think. Ah, uh, thank you. I hope, yeah, I mean, I, I honestly think that's true, you know. I mean, we're amazing because we're still an independent company, which is remarkable in this day and age with all the... As you know, all the, the big conglomerates eating everything, you know. Do you ever get sort of tired, not sort of physically, but more kind of emotionally of how much of your own self you, you kind of give away or, or share with everyone through your work? Pauline's been wonderful in the fact that she's, you know, we've been together since I was 21. So I've got this real stability at home, which is really lovely. And then also um, she's not very social, so she doesn't really like to go to events or, you know. So we sort of have got this whole private life, which is, you know, we feel really pleased. Uh, well, you know, really uh, privileged to have, really. So I think we've, you know, when I'm at work, I'm, I'm immersed in it. And when I'm not at work, I'm, I'm distanced from it, which is... I think probably kept me, you know, kept the balance all right. Obviously, like everybody, it's really difficult during the, uh, you know, the, the virus time that we've gone through now, which is shocking. And so is it, is it this year you're 50 years? Yeah, October the 9th, 1970. October the 9th. Oh, God, you know the actual day. That's great. Yeah, October the 9th, 1970. Yeah, a Friday it was. Amazing. We took 35 quid. I think Pauline bought everything. <laughs> <laughs> just to please me that's what you need yeah <laughs> so what's next what's next for for you per, for personally and for the business what's next i mean what i've always been chuffed with is is just the down-to-earthness of the business and the continuity of the business and never being number one or two but never you know always having a relevance you know so I think one of the dangers with fashion is being too fashionable, you know. And luckily, we've we've never been that. We've just been sort of quite solid. So, you know, for me personally, at the moment, touch wood, yeah, I've still got my health and I'm full of energy and enthusiasm. 
and um, luckily I'm, I'm building a very nice young team around me. So hopefully the, the company can, I mean, after this horror that we're going through right now of the world that, you know, maybe our business will have to be different or readjust. Who knows? None of us know, do we? It's like a reset for the world, isn't it? It's like a control-alt-delete for everyone that needs to... Yeah, absolutely. And also, it absolutely doesn't exclude the big companies either. And, you know, in the early early part of it, I think it, people thought that, well, they'll be immune to it. But I think nobody is really immune to it now. Do you think you ever will retire? Or will they have to, will they have to, remember when I met you last time, you were like, I just feel so grateful and happy to be given the opportunity to do what I do, that every morning I wake up thinking I'm going to get knocked over by a boss because this can't be, people can't have so much fun in their life, so. Yeah, that's what I, I mean, I I still, every day I just feel so privileged and say, I come into work and I just think, oh, so good, there's so much to do, so many exciting things. I'm, I, I imagine what I'll do is build my young team up, which I'm, I'm doing quite actively anyway, which incidentally was it's quite interesting because we were, go, we were do, going through that right now anyway this year yeah, as, as sort of part of the 50th. So I suppose if I want to just do a two-day week or a, a whatever, then hopefully that will give me the opportunity to do that. But at the moment, I love it too much, you know. Yeah, you can tell, and that's that's so refreshing to still have that enthusiasm, which is great. So, Paul, as part of the podcast, we ask all of our guests to donate a special item, which is sold on Bestia Collective, with all of the proceeds going to a special charity of their choice. So, we know that you're going to donate a mystery item. Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> it's such a mystery, I'm not sure what it is yet, but it'll be <laughs> definitely worth it. And if I can write on it, I'm going to write Paul Smith on it. So it'll be a nice, a nice thing. Amazing. And which charity is it that we're going to be working with? I like a charity called Tommy's Campaign, which is for St. Thomas's Hospital, which is for kids. So, um, yes, please. Can you send it to that? If anybody's willing to pay a pound or two or three or four. Oh, I'm sure there'll be plenty of people. I'm going to call that woman who bought the Murano glass. I reckon she's yeah, got Yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> Thank you so much, Paul. That was brilliant. Yeah, lovely to talk to you. I, so I think I spoke too much. Sorry about that, uh, Henry. But good. Not at all. That's that's the point. <laughs> well, good luck and uh, take care. Thank you so much. You take care, yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for that, Paul. That was amazing. And I'm genuinely serious when I say I'm going to be front of the queue logging into that Bestiaire Collective app to see what mystery item Mr. Paul Smith has signed and donated. Make sure you go and check out the app and search What Were You Thinking in the profile bar. And thank you for listening to the podcast. That's a wrap on season one of What Were You Thinking? Don't know about you, but I've had a bloody great time. Thank you to all of my amazing guests. And make sure you keep an eye on our Instagram at What Were You Thinking Podcast for any announcements for when we'll be back. And if you do want us back, then get going with those five-star reviews. Thank you very much. This is Henry Holland signing off on season one. And if all else fails, I might just release this as a cover. Goodbye, my friends. I know you keep on searching, coming Can you tell who my dream guest is? Bye, guys. <laughs>